بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدي هدي محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار so today is is the final session on the explanation of the verse in surah an-nisa the fourth chapter verse number 36 in relation to the 10 rights the 10 rights that allah azawajal has placed uh, for his for his nation and we have looked so far at the first four the right of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wa'budullaha wa la tushriku bihi shay'a to single out a line worship and not to associate any partners with him wa bil walidayni ihsana and then benevolence to the parents wa bi dhil qurba and then to the near relatives the blood relatives and wal yatama and the orphans so we covered these in the previous uh, three or four sessions and today's session inshallah ta'ala we want to complete uh, the remaining six and so uh, the sheikh rahimahullah sheikh ubaid al jabri rahimahullah uh, he then goes on to mention the next group and this is the masakin wal masakin wal masakin the sheikh says that the word al masakin is the plural of miskin miskin and the scholars have defined the word miskin as being the one who only has provision for that day the, the he only has provision for that day in which which he is in and the sheikh says this is how the scholars have basically defined this word however that which is correct the sheikh says is um the, the definition of miskin is the one who has mal he has wealth but it is not sufficient to make him free of need right it doesn't reach him to the level of al-ghina which means to not be in need and this means that obviously the needs that a person has for himself for his family for his dependents is food drink clothing and housing right so these are the basic essential necessities food drink clothing and housing and uh, so a person is said to be a miskin who does not who, who doesn't have enough to make him free of need free of want the sheikh mentions an evidence for this and he says the evidence for this definition of miskin of miskin is in the verse in surah al-kahf the 18th chapter of the quran verse number 79 Uh, in which Allah Zawajal he says amma as-safinatu fa kanat limasakina ya'maluna fil bahr so this is in relation to the ships when dhul qarnain 
uh, on his on his journey. Uh, sorry, Al Khadir, and um, in relation to Musa salam. And so there were some ships. So he said, as for the ship, then it was it belonged to some masakin, to some needy people who used to work on the sea, on, on the ocean. So the point of evidence here is that even though they are described as masakin, then they are still working, right? They have, they have employment or they have some sort of uh, means of, of earning. And so on that basis, uh, as the Sheikh says, Sammahumullah masakin. Allah labeled them as masakin. And these people were working on the ship. And this would be similar to in the modern day, the Sheikh says, how for example someone, he might own a house, uh, he might have dependents, but he has a, a wage and, uh, you know, that might be enough to give him a certain amount of provision or maybe a bit more. And likewise, someone else who might own um, a house and a car or numerous cars and he rents them out or he, you know, so he still has some sort of income, but nevertheless, he is unable to fulfill the needs of himself and his dependents and, and, and the family whom he is res- responsible for. Meaning that he can't reach the level of not being in any additional need or support. So, for example, to explain what this means, you know, a person uh, would would give his family two or three meals on a daily basis and have enough clothes for them to, you know, wear and so on and so forth. And this person who might be working, he, he earns, but he's not able to feed his family sufficiently. Maybe they can only have one meal a day or something, or two meals a day or something, or sometimes they go hungry or something like that. Right? So, and they don't have clothes, sufficient clothes to, to be able to... So, this is a miskin who's not able to reach the level of al-ghina, al-ghina. Now, the scholars also discuss the difference between uh, the faqir and the miskin. Uh, what is a faqir? What is a miskin? And basically, there's some uh, different views, but the essence of it is that really they are the same thing. A miskin and a faqir, they are the same thing. However, the faqir is more severe in his need. Right? So he is in, in poverty, in, in, in greater want than a miskin. Otherwise, generally speaking, the miskin and the faqir they basically, the, the definition is basically the same. He who does not have al-ghina, right, which is, which is sufficiency and freedom from want in his basic needs, his food, his drink, his clothing, and his, his abode, right? So, so this is the fifth category, and we are obligated, uh, they have a right upon us, the right of ihsan, of benevolence, and that includes benevolence in terms of wealth and in any other form that a person is able to show benevolence. So if a person does not have wealth and is not able to help them, then it's with a good word, it's with support, it's with his time, it's with, you know, it's with different things based upon a person's, uh, the means available. The next category in the ayah, Allah Azawajal, he says, 
So this is the neighbor who is a relative and the neighbor who is distant, meaning who is not a relative. Right? So these, this is the sixth and the seventh category. And the Shaykh is going to explain and speak uh, a bit about the issue of the neighbor. And who says, Al-Jar, Kullu man jawara. The neighbor is anyone who is in proximity. And anyone upon whom this proximity, this nearness or this closeness is applied to. Irrespective of whether it is sawa'an kana fi sakin, or fi hirf Right, so this applies, it's not only just to the place where you live. Right, so you have the neighbor by this side, the neighbor by this side, the neighbor in front of you, a neighbor behind you. This is one meaning of the word neighbor. It also applies to the one who is in the same profession as you, who is in the same skill as you. Right, so for example, uh, there are people who accompany each other or, for example, in... in uh, producing goods or in um, you know in agriculture in the fields in uh, in industry in manufacture right so they are next to each other and they share the same uh, discipline or the skill right so they are also considered to be jiran considered to be neighbors and the sheikh says that the meaning of the word neighbor now english Typically, commonly, we, we understand neighbor to mean the one who is on this side and the one who is on, on that side, right? But in Arabic, the Sheikh says, the word jiran or jar, it is urfi. It is, urfi. It, it is defined by custom, by what is the commonly, uh, cust- uh, that which is understood by way of custom. And it's not being defined in the sharia, right? So there's no definition of the neighbor in the sharia. It is whatever we understand in accordance with our local customs and traditions to be a neighbor. Now the Shaykh goes on to explain that this issue of the neighbor, we've read it in the Quran. This is from the ten rights. The neighbor is from those uh, people. But it is, it is mutawatir. In the sunnah, it has been reported by large-scale transmission in the sunnah that there is advice in relation to the neighbor. And how his right is a great right. His right has been, you know, magnified. And this is the statement of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Whoever believes in Allah and the last day, then let him honor his neighbor. So honoring the neighbor has been made a part of an unnecessary uh, a, a completion or a necessary part of believing in Allah and the last day. Right? It's, it's a sign or, or a requirement of belief in Allah and the last day that you honor your neighbor. And then we have also in another hadith uh, in which it is said, فَلَا يُؤْذِي فَلَا يُؤْذِي Let him not harm his neighbor. So we have ikram on the one hand, which is honoring, and then we have abandonment of abusing or harming, harming him from on, on the other hand. The shaykh then goes on to say that if we gather together all of the ahadith, if we bring together all the ahadith that speak of the rights of the neighbor, 
we find that between these ahadith there is an agreement an agreement that the right of the neighbor comprises all of the following things all of the following things and they are as follows number 1 ahaduha kaful adha anhu to refrain from harming him irrespective whether this is this is from yourself from the family or your dependents so for example you have you have a neighbor and you make sure that you do not harm the neighbor your children do not harm the neighbor maybe they are making a noise that could be you know late at night in the evening or they are throwing things over the wall of the neighbor or they're doing something that can can disturb or harm the neighbor so you know this would be included within this kaful other not to not to harm the neighbor um, likewise things to do with the perimeter and boundaries that you have with the neighbor um, you know um, there could be uh, for example your tree that's you know causing grief or some inconvenience or something um, uh, maybe you might need to cut it or you know the, the things like that that a person you have to look am i harming or inconveniencing or disturbing the neighbor by by way of these affairs so whether it is from himself or his offspring his his dependents who are, who are with him then all of this enters into that athani hifdhu irdhihi fi hudurihi wa ghaybatihi wa ghaybatihi fala yata'adda lahu ala irdin bal alayhi siyanatuh to protect his honor to safeguard his honor whether in his absence or his presence his presence or his absence so he does not transgress in terms of his honor rather he must protect his honor this is the second issue now now it's the honor of your neighbor and the third the third is or the third part of it is al-hadiyah at-tahadi which is to give the gift and to exchange gifts between the neighbors because the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam he said ya nisa ya nisa al-muslimat la tahkiranna jaratun li jaratiha an tuhdi laha walaw walaw firsina shatin o muslim women o women of the muslims or muslim women do not belittle the let not let not a neighbor belittle her neighbor sorry the, the meaning is do not let a neighbor cons- belittle it that she should give to her neighbor even a sheep's hoof in like a gift do not belittle this and do not belittle your neighbor to such a degree that you can't even give a sheep's hoof in you know uh, in terms of a, a gift and the sheikh then goes on to speak about the gift and he says that this mutual exchange of gifts is uh, something uh, specific and uh, and in terms of muslims it is more general right so amongst the muslims we give gifts tahadu wa tahabu exchange gifts and create mutual love we 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 learn in a, in another hadith however here this now is specific to the neighbor 
because the neighbor has a right over and above the general right of Islam. And so, um, this giving of gifts, it strengthens the ties, it spreads love and affection uh, between those who, those who give gifts, irrespective of whether they are neighbors or not neighbors. However, between the neighbors, the Sheikh says, it is more emphatic, it is more emphasized. So, with your neighbors, in fact, we see in another uh, hadith narrated by Abu Dhar, radiallahu anhu, from the Prophet ﷺ who said, Ya Abu Dhar, إِذَا تَبَخْتَ مَرَكَةً فَأَكْثِرْ مَاءَهَا وَتَعَاهَدْ جِيرَانَكَ O Abu Dhar, if you cook some soup or some broth, then increase the water and give some to your neighbor. And there has also come in some other narrations, the Sheikh says that the Messenger of Allah he prohibited Naha and Yu'zil Jar Jarahu Bikutaru Pidrin. That he prohibited that a person or a neighbor should harm his neighbor by way of the the smell of cooking. And what this means is that if you are cooking and the neighbor can smell you know the, the, the smell of your of your cooking then he should give the neighbor some of that food because otherwise this would be like potentially harming the neighbor in, in the sense that he's smelling the food and maybe he could be hungry maybe um, you know and, and he's not receiving anything to eat so even to that degree uh, this is the right of the neighbor to make sure that you you know if your if your cook is on the boil if your if your pot is on the boil that you offer something you know to the neighbor also from the from the affairs is uh, to respect the neighbor or this also comes under the the rights of the neighbor uh, to respect the neighbor in the sense that if he entrusts you like there's an amana between you that you respect that amana in the sense that if that if that neighbor was to go away and behind him is his family, his dependents, his wife, and so on and so forth, and he's away for a period of time, then this is a trust. And to break that trust and to do something with his family is the greatest type of treachery. In the hadith of Ibn Mas'ud, radiallahu anhu, narrated by Al-Bukhari al-Muslim, that he said to the Messenger of Allah, a'zam? Allah, which sin is greatest in the sight of Allah? And the Messenger says, That you make for Allah a rival in worship, yet He created you. And then He said, So, so uh, Ibn Masood said, Indeed, that is great. Then what is after that? He said, That you kill your child fearing that he might eat with you. So this is now out of fear of poverty. You kill the child out of fear of poverty. This is a great sin. Then he said, Then I said, which one? And he said, That you commit zina with the wife of your neighbor. And so, this has been made by the Prophet 
from the kabair al-dhunub, from the most grave and serious of sins, which is khiyana. It is like a type of treachery towards the neighbor, the family of the neighbor, in that you, uh, that you violate his honor and you, you know, in his absence and in his, you know, when he does not have knowledge of his household, in his absence, you act treacherously and you take that opportunity to, to violate his honor and his trust. And the Sheikh says that the reason he's from the major sins is because, is because uh, he, he acted treacherously towards his neighbor in a situation in which his neighbor placed trust in him. Right? He believed that I can trust my neighbor. He will uh, look, you know, he will respect my, my family and he will respect their right. And, you know, he could be gone for weeks, months, or sometimes even years. It happens that someone has to go away for years. And then while he is away thinking, well, it's good, I can trust my neighbor, he's going to, the neighbor is actually behaving treacherously. And, you know, where, whereas he's thinking that he will honor me. And, you know, so this is from the greatest of major sins. And it is treachery and deception. Now, the, so these are the basic rights when we speak of the neighbor. These are the rights of the neighbor. Right? Kafful adha, to withhold from annoying or abusing or harming. Hifzu irdihi, to safeguard his honor so that you do not, you do not backbite him, you don't speak ill of him and, and things like that. And you defend him where he needs to be defended. Uh, thirdly, the giving and exchange of gifts, which in general, is among the Muslimin, but among the neighbor it is specific and more emphasized. And fourthly, to uh, respect the honor and the dignity of the neighbor and not to transgress as it relates to his to his household. Now, after this, the Sheikh was on to explain the ayah because in the ayah it mentioned uh, uh, two types of neighbor: waljari dil qurba, waljari junub. So. On the basis of this, the neighbors, the Sheikh says, the neighbors are of three types. Waljiran thalathatun. Jarun paribun Muslim. A neighbor who is a relative and a Muslim. Right? So a Muslim blood relative neighbor. That's number one. Wajarun Muslimun walaysa biqarib. And a neighbor who is a Muslim, but he is not a relative. And then, وَجَارٌ la Muslimun وَلَا قَرِيبٌ هو كافر. Right? A neighbor who is neither a Muslim, nor is he a blood relative, rather he is a non-Muslim. And the Sheikh says, we can also add a fourth category to this as well, which is, جَارٌ قَرِيبٌ كَافِرٌ Which is, a neighbor who is a blood relative, but he is a disbeliever. Right? So he's a disbeliever, but he, you know, it's a blood relation. So each of these has his particular right. So, he speaks about each of these four categories. The first one, al-awwal. It is al-jar al-muslim al-qarib. Right? So this person, the Muslim neighbor blood relative, 
he actually has three layers or levels of rights. Three rights stacked on top of each other. Right? It is the right of Islam. He has the right of Islam. Haqqul Islam. Haqqul Quraba. The right of blood relation. And the right of being a neighbor. Right? So these are stacked on top of each other. Right? So what are, what are the rights of a Muslim upon a Muslim? Haqqul Muslimi ala al-Muslimi sit. Right? So when you, uh, when you, when you meet him, you give him salam. Uh, when he invites you, you accept his invitation. Uh, when he seeks advice from you, you give him advice. When uh, he sneezes, you invoke mercy upon him. And when he's ill, you visit him. And when he dies, you attend his janazah. Right? So these are the general rights that every Muslim has upon another Muslim. Then stacked on top of that one, is the right of blood relations. So now there are rights in relation to the, the, the qurba. This goes back to the, you know, the, the uh, third right in the ayah. Right? So we spoke about that in some depth, about who, who are the closest ones to you, your, your parents, right? And then, um, you know, then, then you're, you're, you're going upwards, downwards, and sideways, brothers, sisters, uncles. We spoke about all of that. And then on top of that, there's the right of the neighbor as well. Right? So this now includes all of these other things that we said, kaful adha, hifdu irdihi, and so on and so forth. And so this is the first group. The second group is the jar Muslim. The Muslim neighbor, but who is not a relative. He's not a blood relative. So now he has the right of Islam and the right of being a neighbor. And obviously here there's no kind of other connection uh, with between you. Um, you're not like an in-law or a you know nephew or a niece or a brother. or a, There's nothing like that. It's just Islam and being a neighbor. The third of the four categories is the non-Muslim. The non-Muslim who is not a blood relative. So, he has the right of being a neighbor only. And the shaykh then goes on to mention some important piece of uh, advice. And he says that I I give some advice to the Muslims who live with non-Muslims in their lands. You know, uh, the Muslims in general and Ahlu Sunnah specifically. Those who live by side of the non-Muslims in Europe, in Britain, in America, in New York, in Washington, and other places, likewise in India, in all these different places, it is upon them to fulfill the rights of their neighbors and not to transgress against the honor, nor the self, nor the wealth of their neighbor. And... If they, if they violate these rights, then they have disobeyed Allah and His Messenger and they have committed a great crime. Because when the people, uh, you know, when the people of disbelief, when the non-Muslims, when they live by the side of the Muslims and, you know, when they, when they, when they see some deception or, or you know, uh, bad behavior, then the reputation of the Muslims will be affected. They will they will speak ill of the of the reputation of the Muslims, and this is very very true, as 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 you know and you see. 
um, uh, and especially as we have a great deal of uh, immigration and refugees coming from fleeing the Muslim lands and uh, very sadly they, they, they are given safe passage, they come here, they are given housing, clothing and then they end up doing crime and um, you know uh, oppressing the the the, the, the you know the, the people whose country this is, all of this is, is gives a horrible reputation for Islam and its people, and uh, very very sadly this is this is a phenomenon that the Sheikh is rahimahullah is pointing out uh, that it's very important that we that we that we do not violate these these covenants and these agreements, and the Sheikh says what the, what we see happening every now and then it happens. And we come to know about it by way of the newspapers and the internet That some of the Muslims, they uh, transgress against their neighboring non-Muslims This is, he says, it's a khiyana lil amana This is, a, it's acting treacherously to the trust And this in turn, it draw, especially in Europe and France and other places It, it leads some of the foolish people uh, those who ascribe to Islam, they, they, and he's speaking here specifically here, those who attacked some of the journals and the magazines, he's speaking about Charlie Hebdo, you know, the attack, uh, which then leads to vengeance and revenge and other attacks, right? So you have foolish people doing these things, and you have foolish people on the other side doing things back, and all of this, you know, from, from the Jews or the Christians or the atheists or whatever it might be, and they will then come and they will attack uh, Muslims, and you know, even spill blood. All of this is is the evil effects of not respecting and honoring, you know, the the rights of the of the neighbor. The Sheikh says, if the Muslims who were living in non-Muslim lands, they were to fulfill their rights of of neighborhood, and were truthful to them in speech, and they safeguarded and protected whatever they were entrusted with. They fulfilled the covenant and the agreement uh, and, and you know, displayed all of the mahasin, the beautiful aspects of Islam. Then many of the people of this belief would have entered into Islam in, in droves, in large numbers. And this, the Sheikh says, is known and experienced in history, in the history of the Islamic da'wah uh, from its first times. Many, many non-Muslims, large numbers that cannot be enumerated, they became Muslim. Uh, when, when, they saw, when they saw the Muslims manifesting the beautiful aspects of their religion and amongst them even were, were scholars and callers uh, to Islam. Now on that note, um, or, or, or the last one he mentions, category number four is Al-Qarib, uh, Al-Jar, Al-Kafir. Right. So this now is the disbeliever who is not a Muslim but he's a neighbor and a relative. Neighbor and a blood relative. So he does not have the right of Islam, but he has the right of a neighbor and the right of a blood relative. And so this is what is meant by al-jaril junub. Maybe this is what is meant, the Sheikh says, by wal-jaril junub, right? The distant uh, neighbor. So, th- so these are the four categories of being a neighbor. And so since we're on this topic, the Sheikh raised the point of, uh, you know, Islam, non-Muslims, and behavior, I want to just mention a few quotations just to highlight the beauty of Islam and the justice of Islam in the sense that Al-Adal, justice, 
is the principle of all relations between Muslims and non-Muslims. And this is the same whether non-Muslims are citizens of a Muslim state as would be the case with Ahlul Dhimma or whether it is Muslims who are citizens in a non-Muslim state. Right? The principle is Al-Adal. It is that of justice. And to highlight the justice of Islam, uh, I want to quote here, maybe you've come across this before, by the Muslim uh, jurist, um, Ahmed bin Idris al-Misri, uh, who stated, uh, the, the speaking about the dhimma, right? So when non-Muslims want to live in a Muslim uh, state, they pay a nominal uh, fee, uh, which is to exempt them from military duty, and which earns them guaranteed protection. Right? This is the dhimma. And um, in fact, the word dhimma, because you have many, many non-Muslim Islam haters who hate Islam, you know, they, they, they try to make fun of this word, you know, dhimmi. Do you want to be a dhimmi under Islamic rule? Right? Because they make it look like as if it's, you know, like they, they, they portray the most horrible interpretation of, of this. But the word dhimma, what does the word dhimma mean? It means, if you go back in the dictionaries, we see it means covenant, contract, bond, protection, shelter, alliance, responsibility, clientship, care, custody, covenant, protection, inviolability, security of life. These are the meanings of the word dhimma. Right? And what does it mean? It means that you pay a nominal fee to be exempted from military duty and your, 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 your rights, your protection to practice your religion, to be safe, it is guaranteed by the Muslim state. Right? And to give you an illustration of what we find in the speech of the jurists of Islam in relation to how these people are to be treated, this is a quote from, uh, he said, the covenant of the guarantee of safety, the dhimma, obligates certain rights from us, Muslims, which are due to them, the non-Muslims, because they are in our neighborhood and under our protection. They are under the dhimma of Allah the Most High, of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and of Islam. Right? So in other words, these people are under the dhimma. This is the dhimma of Allah and His Messenger and of, of Islam. Whoever transgressed against them, even if it is with an evil word or backbiting them, with respect to the honor of one of them, or any harm among the types of harm, or who even aided in that, then he has ruined the guarantee of safety of Allah, of his messenger, and of the religion of Islam that had been granted to them. Meaning, this person now has ruined the dhimma, that guarantee which is given to them by Allah, his messenger, and Islam. And then he goes on to explain, what does it mean to be kind to those who do not fight you for your religion and do not expel you from your homes? Right? He's talking about the verse in La Yunhaakum Allah to the end of the ayah, who do not uh, fight you and do not expel you from your homes and tabarruhum that you, you know, behave, uh, that you're righteous towards them and that you are just towards them. He's speaking about that verse. And he says, this verse, what does it mean? 
the, the righteousness, to show gentleness to their weak, to satisfy the needs of their poor, to feed their hungry, to clothe their naked, to use gentle kind speech to them from the angle of compassion and mercy towards them, not out of fear or inferiority. Look at the very precise description here. Right? We do these things out of compassion and mercy for them, not because somehow, you know, we feel ourselves inferior and lower than them or out of fear of them. Right? No, it is from the angle of compassion and mercy. To bear whatever harm arises from them when they are our neighbors, despite having the ability to end their harm. This is patience. Doing this out of compassion for them, not out of fear or veneration of them. To supplicate for guidance for them, that they be made people of happiness, to advise them in all of all their affairs that pertain to their religion, and likewise their worldly affairs, to protect them in their absence when anyone embarks upon harming them, to protect their wealth, their families, their honor, and all of their rights and beneficial interests, that they are supported in repelling any oppression against them, and delivering all their rights to them. A Muslim does all such acts of goodness towards them that one who is in a privileged position can possibly do towards the one who is underprivileged. And likewise, all acts of goodness that even an enemy could possibly do towards an enemy. For all of that is from nobility and character and manners. It is desirable that all of what we do with respect to them is from this angle, not from the angle of pride and loftiness on our behalf, and nor from the angle of belittling ourselves and exalting them through such actions towards them. Look at the complete balance in everything in terms of what's behind the actions that we are doing. It's not because of inferiority or fear of these people, nor is it because of pride and arrogance, but rather it is out of, of compassion and you know mercy and genuine you know wanting to genuinely uh, do good to these people. Now imagine imagine this was the understanding of the average Englishman or the Frenchman or the German person or the European or the American that this is what they knew and experienced of Islam. Right? Because people did experience this, like the Sheikh said at the beginning in the early times, that this this is how people entered into Islam in their droves. It wasn't by conquest and you know forced conversion by the sword. No, this this didn't take place. Uh, Islam, yes, there were military conquests because this is the nature of empire. It's the nature of civilization. You are an ignorant fool if you think that somehow uh, Islam and the Muslims can be criticized for you know expanding and waging war because this is just a fundamental fact of, of, of empire and civilization. This has always been happening throughout the whole of history, throughout the whole of human history. One empire comes, takes another empire, another civilization comes. It's, it, you know, this is how it happens. And they last 100 years, 200 years, they crumble. Another empire comes. This is just how it is. But yes, there were military conquests. But overwhelmingly, the people entered into Islam in their droves when they traded with the Muslims, when they interacted with Muslims, when they recognized the reality of what Islam calls to. Uh, many of them, even in in the Crusades, when they fought against the Muslims and many Christians, they saw that, you know, 
their fellow Christians acted treacherously towards them, right? And deserted them in battle and, and allowed them to be slaughtered by the Muslims. And when the Muslims saw them, these poor people, they've been robbed by their fellow Christians, they've been abandoned. They felt so sorry for them that they basically, you know, gave their possessions, they gave them food, they whatever. And uh, that's why the, the Sheikh said here that an enemy could possibly do towards an enemy. Even in the time of battle and domination, right? So people saw all of this in the past. And that's what they, from that experience, they entered into Islam in, in droves, as the Sheikh said. And today, what do we see? We see the dregs, the dregs of society from Muslim nations who were all but westernized, right? Tribulations have come to those lands. They flee those lands. And they come to the lands of the non-Muslims, right? They're all like westernized, dressed like westerners, listening to music, rap, whatever, right? And they're given safe passage. They enter under, under a covenant, a guarantee. They're given food, vouchers, housing, whatever. And then they start committing crimes. They start raping, they start abusing, they start stealing, they start whatever. What else is a non-Muslim supposed to think when this is what he sees, Right? This is what these people, this is what they see of, of Islam. And so for that reason, it is upon, like the Sheikh said, it is upon all of us to convey these uh, teachings of Islam, these beautiful aspects of Islam, practi practically speaking, by way of leaflets, by way of books, by way of you know, lectures, by way of you know, uh, taking the time to distribute these leaflets to, to the neighbors. All of this helps inshallah to you know correct people's perceptions that whomever allah has written guidance then he will be guided by that inshallah ta'ala as we're still on this i want to mention another thing as well um, keeping on the same issue of the neighbor showing the justice of islam once again under the title the jewish neighbor the jewish neighbor in the uh al it's in um, Al-Adab Al-Mufrad of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari Rahimahullah Ta'ala And it's from uh, Mujahid Rahimahullah Ta'ala Who said that I, I was with Abdullah bin Amr One of the companions of the Messenger of Allah Whilst his servant was preparing a sheep for a meal And he said, O servant, when you have finished cooking the meal Then begin by offering to our Jewish neighbor first Right, so this is a companion of Allah's Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Right, so remember, this is after the time of the Messenger of Allah sallam, after all the things that happened with the Yahud uh, of Khaybar and you know whatever else that happened, and they were they were dealt with justice according to justice and according to their own law. But after that, those who remained from the people of the book under covenant under Dhimma, this is how they were. This is how they were how they were treated. Right. So he said, begin by offering to our Jewish neighbor first. So a man said, uh, the Yahudi, may Allah rectify you. So he said, I heard the Prophet, Abdullah bin Amr said, I heard the Prophet advising with kindness to the neighbor with such emphasis until we feared he would relate to us through revelation that the neighbor is to inherit from his fellow neighbor. Meaning, irrespective of Islam, right? 
that the neighbor, irrespective of Islam or not, his right would be so emphasized that revelation would come down that he would he would have the right of inheritance. So this is what Abdullah bin Amr is saying that the Messenger used to emphasize it so much that we felt as if revelation is now going to come down that the neighbor inherits from the neighbor irrespective of of, of the religion. So, okay, so that, that's one one thing. Al Ashat bin Qais who's a man from the Muslims, he had a dispute with another man from the Yahud. And this was dispute some about some land in Yemen. And he didn't present any clear evidence, right? This is a companion. So the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, hadith in the Bukhari Muslim, he judged in the affair, and he judged in favor of the Jew, because the Jew had the right, had the haqq. Against the companion, right? There's no, there's no favoritism here, right? Unlike what you see when you go to the books of the Yahud, and especially the, the Talmud, you see that there's tribal racial preference, right? Well, that's a whole topic in itself. Uh, Likewise, he permitted the Jews to judge in accordance with their own law in disputes between them. And he did not impose upon them in their own disputes unless they came to him and sought his judgment in a dispute. Right? So this now again is the excellence of Islam in that Islam, you know, they speak about discrimination and, you know, whatever else. But really, what, what if you look at the beauty of Islam, Islam is that if you are Jews or Christians, then you are free to practice according to your own law amongst yourselves. Do whatever you, you want amongst your own selves. And we, you know, we won't impose or encroach upon that unless you come to us for justice. So here, Islam allows these people to maintain their culture, their worship, their whatever. Right? This is the justice of Islam. Whereas, in this so-called fake uh, democracy... Uh, hypocrisy, you know, uh, they they demand from you, like you see in France, you know, they detest your religion and they want you to abandon your religion. They hate it with a vengeance that they can't even allow a woman to wear a scarf on her head. This is the the hatred and the enmity these people have. Yet they claim to be people of of justice and fairness and mercy. It's, it's not, it's not. They are the most enmitous, hate-filled people. All the hate is coming from them. The hate speech, the hate laws, right? It's, it, these are laws that are based upon hatred of other people and their religion and their tradition and their culture and their values. And they overturn the tables and using this deceptive speech which they are, which they are masters of, they make it look as if it's the other way around. Right? So this is the, the superiority of Islam over this fake democracy, hypocrisy, you know, uh, that they, that they uh, celebrate. Likewise, the Prophet ﷺ behaved with justice, benevolence, good manners, fulfilled the trusts. From his good behavior with the Jews is that he would visit their sick as related by Anas bin Malik, that a boy among the Jews who would serve the Prophet in his chores, 
He once fell sick. So the messenger went to him and he invited him to Islam. And the boy's father ordered his son to obey the Prophet. Right? So the father ordered him to obey the Prophet and accept Islam. So the son accepted Islam. Likewise, the messenger of Islam would accept gifts from the Jews. He had trade dealings with the Jews. Aisha radiallahu anha relates that the messenger of Islam, he purchased some food from a Jew on credit. And he mortgaged his shield for that food. For that the, the, uh, item of food. The Jews would often pass by him, ask him questions about religious matters. Once they asked him about the soul. And you know, the, uh, the, the verse came down about the ruh. And um, he would also supplicate for them for guidance and rectification. And also, at the same time, along with all this just behavior, he would also mete out justice to anyone who acted treacherously or with treason or who violated the covenants, disturbed the peace or worked mischief and corruption upon the earth. Be it a Jew or other than a Jew. Right? So though among the Jews who were treacherous and they allied with the polytheists and the hypocrites, right? And they were given justice in accordance with the Torah, uh, in accordance with the Torah. And, you know, so any transgression, the messenger of the Sallam, he once a man came and um, whilst he was a non-Muslim or on his way to the messenger of Allah, he raided some people and he stole their wealth. And then when he came to the Messenger of Islam, um, he, 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 want, he, he wanted to become a Muslim and he wanted to offer the stolen goods, the, the, the goods he'd taken by, by way of robbery and whatever. So the Messenger of Islam said, as for your Islam, we accept it and as for your this, then we have no need of it. Right? So all of this you can see is from the perfect justice of the Messenger of Allah And as we said, what defines our relationship with non-Muslims, be it in this situation where they are Ahlul Dhimma, or whether we are in their lands, living under covenant, the other way around, whether it is in peace, whether it is in war, what defines our relationships is justice. And for that reason, that's why you see even in, in war, for example, we are prohibited, as outlined by Abu Bakr, radiallahu anhu, that we are not to kill the women, we are not to kill the children, we are not to uproot trees, we are not to destroy buildings, we are not to kill the priests and the ascetic worshippers, nor are we to kill the people who are just getting on with their, you know, tilling the fields and doing this and whatever, and they're not involved in the fighting. All of this is from the justice of Islam in that we only fight those who fight. Right? We fight only those who are actual combatants. And the messenger of Islam, once he came across a woman who had been killed, and he said, this, this woman was not to be killed. This woman was not to be killed. And so, in war, as, as you've seen now, in relation to neighbors, in relation to family, in relation... In every respect, you can see that there is complete justice in the Sharia, in Islam, in everything. And this is very different to what we see 
of the the oppression of those amongst the Jews who call themselves Zionists and these are you know the, 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 these people started off as really like a secular movement and what they had in their mind in the 19th century was that they didn't really like the plot the 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 way the Jews were living across Europe in ghettos, you know, uh, the religious ghetto Jew, they didn't like that idea. And so they wanted to have like a nation like other nations. And this is the idea of Zionism. It started off as like a secular ideology, like a secular political movement, right? So then, when the money power came in, it was funded by wealthy banking people at the beginning of the uh, 20th century and in general this is what they don't tell you but all across Europe for centuries they had this you know hatred and dislike of Jews they didn't like Jews and the politicians of Europe were thinking of ways it wasn't just Hitler so don't think it was just Hitler it was others as well they were thinking how can we get these Jews and give them their own place because we don't really want them here right this includes politicians, don't think it's just Hitler, right? They were trying to solve this issue of the Yahud. And so, obviously they gave the land to, uh, you know, the Balfour Declaration, and they gave that as a state. And since that time, the rich and wealthy Yahud, they did two things. The first thing that they did is that they paid a man called Schofield to write a new type of Bible, a new Bible. And within this Bible, the translation and then the things would be changed in such a way that the only way you can be a good Christian is to support the Zionist project and to support Israel. Right? This is called the Schofield Bible. And they use that Bible to create a movement which today we know as the Christian Zionists. The Christian Zionists, right? Who ally with the Zionists. Really, we consider these as like a domesticated donkey that does the work for the Zionists, right? So they did, this is one thing. And the second thing is that they began to indoctrinate the average Jew with this political philosophy that being Jewish is a nationality. It's a nationality, right? Jew, being a Jew, they, they wanted to turn it into a political identity rather than a religion. Do you understand? Right? So, it's a bit like, it's a bit like this. Imagine, if you imagine, imagine like Hezbollah Tahrir, for example, right? The Khilafah people. And they say, you know what? The Muslim identity should be centered around the khilaf, should be a political thing, not a religious thing. Right? So then they start nurturing Muslims upon like this political idea of being a Muslim and moving them away from, you know, Islam as a creed, Islam as, you know, uh, you know. So you're, you're, you're politicizing the religion and moving them away uh, 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 and moving away from religion, right? So this is what the Zionists, what they did. 
So they, they wanted to turn the ghetto Jew into a nationalistic, patriotic, militarized Jew. And that's what they've done very, very successfully. Right? And so they've made people from all across the world come, you know, go to uh, the, the, the state there, military training, whatever, because they are, they are serving a particular purpose. For this reason, many other Jews reject them and reject the Zionist project. Right? Because they believe that the only way we can enter that land is when the Messiah comes. When our Messiah comes, then we'll, we will be led into that land. Before that, we have to live amongst the nations because we are in exile. And it is a heresy. And some say it is apostasy to even attempt to establish a state for the Jews. So they reject and deny that these Zionists speak for all Jews. They don't speak for all Jews, right? It's like, like I said, imagine Hezbollah Tahrir now coming along and saying, we speak for all Muslims. Well, no, you don't. You don't speak for all Muslims. And we don't buy your, you know, your, your, your politicized Khilafah ideology, which is, you know, mixed with it is the manhaj of the Khawarij and the Mu'tazila and allegiance with the Rafida and so we, we, we don't, we don't, we, we, we don't, you don't speak on our behalf. Right? But what the Zionists have done is that they've successfully, in a century, managed to portray themselves as if they are the voice of all of the Jews. But they are not. Right? And you, you've seen many, many Jews all across in, in New York, in, in, in London, in other places, you know, denouncing what the Zionists are doing of the butchery and the savagery and the genocide and the ethnic cleansing, you know, uh, upon, upon the, 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 ideology of revenge against the Amalika, the Amalekites, right? They have this notion that the enemies are the, are the Amalekites, right? And that's why this uh, Netanyahu, this criminal, you know, he actually used this, this mention of the, 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 Amal- uh, the Amalekites recently, right? This is how, this is how they view this, this vengeance and this uh, bloodlust that they have, right? So, Coming back to the point, what was I saying? I was saying that you've, you've seen that our foundation is justice, right? It's the principle of justice. What is just? What is justice? We are not allowed to kill women, children, civilian men, uproot trees, destroy, you know, uh, you know, buildings and things like that. We're not allowed to do that because it is, this is injustice. And, and, and because we are only fighting because because people fight against us in order to hinder the peaceful the, the, the peaceful invitation the call to, to 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 Islam and they want to hinder it they don't want people to hear it right so they don't want people to be to be taken from servitude to men to servitude to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala right to 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 be saved from the clutches of profiteers and exploiters the one who sell them alcohol the one who get them addicted to gambling, the ones who get them addicted to fornication, the ones who, you know, Islam's trying to save these people. So when we try to invite, then they physically and violently and with aggression hinder the call to Islam. So then we, in order to protect the instrument of da'wah, this is why, this is why jihad was legislated. So then we fight the one who fights against us, who's engaged in actual fighting. And it is to make Allah's word supreme. Not because of land, not because of any other reason, right? 
So all of this is justice. Whereas what you see, you know, uh, with, 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 with these criminal, uh, bloodthirsty, genocidal Zionists, right? And this language that I'm using, that's not my language, it's not me saying that. That's Jews who are saying that. I'm quoting Jews for you. It's not me, so you can't come and say this is anti-Semitism. That argument is, is demolished and everybody has seen through that argument. No one falls for these lies anymore. Even one of the heads of one of the uh, United Nations, uh, this top guy who is in the, like, the human rights, uh, just two days ago, he resigned his post and he wrote an article, two-page article, in which he is saying that this is a Zionist genocidal, ethno-supremacist, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing which is taking place in Palestine. And he, out of revulsion, he uh, resigned from his post and he lo- wrote this letter mentioning and stating this in no uncertain terms, right? Then you have Jews all across the world saying exactly the same thing. Uh, there's even like another Jewish guy he called it a textbook case of genocide, right? So, what we want to understand here, that when you read what we've been reading through from the speech of the Shaykh, and you read this ayah in the Quran, and about the neighbors, and about the rights of the neighbor, and I read you everything about the Yahud, you know, and how the Prophet dealt with, with the Jews, with kindness, with, you know, dua for them, visiting their sick, doing trade with them, you know, uh, judging in their affairs and giving them the ruling if they deserve absolute perfect justice, right? This is the justice of Islam. And compare this with, you know, uh, what we see these days. Uh, first of all, uh, what the Zionists are doing uh, in Palestine. And then the domestic donkeys known as the Christian Zionists, which is like a contradiction in terms because, you know, the foundation, Zionists are among the Jews. And Jews reject Isa alayhi salam. Right? And amongst the extreme ones, amongst them, they say things like Isa alayhi salam was an imposter, a magician, uh, the son of an illegitimate union. He is now boiling, na'udhu billahi min dhalik, but they claim he's boiling in the hellfire. La'natullahi alayhim. That he is in the hellfire, in boiling excrement, they say, alayhim la'ainullah, right? That's what they say, right? That's what they say. And to you guys, Isa alayhi salam is the Lord of the worlds. He's the Lord of the worlds, right? Who died for your sins on the cross. And without him, there is no salvation. How on earth have you become the domestic donkeys for these guys over here. How does that even make sense? This is like an absolute contradiction and a sign of utter humiliation. No morals, no principles, no value for the truth. How can you, how can you be like that? To the extent that even churches are being destroyed, their fellow Christians are being bombed and killed. Right? And so really what it comes down to is that these people, they have sold their religion for a paltry price. It's all about money, it's all about wealth, it's all about selling weapons, it's all about profiting from war. 
right? And these affairs, justice will be served on Yawmul Qiyamah. And so that's why, you know, we make dua to all of the oppressed. That Allah Azawajal, He removes this oppression. And justice will be done. This is what gives us certainty, right? That justice will be done. And um, there's, you know, there's only a certain point beyond which that oppression can continue until Allah Azawajal will will meet out his his justice. So, coming back to where we, we where we were, we said. Okay, so this finishes the issue with the neighbors. The next part in the ayah was sahibi was sahibi bil jam. Right, so this is the next right in the ayah. This is right number eight was sahibi bil jamb, which means and the companion by the side, and the companion by the side. This means the Sheikh says. There are two interpretations of this. The first interpretation is it's the wife, it's the spouse, right? It's the husband and the wife. This is the sahib bil jamb. So in other words, every spouse is a partner to the other other partner. And so therefore, they have to fear Allah in respect to each other. And to preserve their rights, to observe their rights. And um, each spouse has to believe that the other spouse is an amana, is like a trust upon their shoulders on the Day of Judgment. Allah will ask them about the right. And so this is one interpretation. The other interpretation is, wasahibi biljamb means the traveling companion. Right? The one whom you're traveling with, on, on a journey. So, this now means, that obviously this person has a right upon you, you have a right upon them, by virtue of you both being travelers. And both of these interpretations are actually correct. Right? So the ayah, وَالصَّاحِبِ بِالْجَمْ It's a general phrase, that the companion who is by your side, this includes the wife, includes the one who you are traveling with, Right, so both of these interpretations are correct; they are not contradictory. Both these meanings are included within uh, the ayah. So, so in other words, uh, the right upon you is d- according to the circumstances. If it's your spouse, there's a certain right. If it's the one you're traveling with, there's a certain right. So, this is number eight. Um, number nine, wabn al-sabil, sabil which is the one who is traveling, the wayfarer, the traveler. And as-sabil is the tariq, is the path, uh, because it leads you to you know, your, your destination. And the traveler, the reason he, he has been given uh, wealth from the zakah um, is because when he travels on a journey, you know, maybe uh, is, to, is to make it easy for him. And there could be different reasons why he is in need. For example, a person might travel to another place, maybe he has a debtor, there's someone who owes a debt to him. He goes to that place, because he's in need of the money, but he finds that the debtor is not there, has traveled, or he's died, which means he hasn't got his money. Now he's stuck, now he's in difficulty. Right? So now it's upon uh, the Muslims to basically 
aid him and to help him. And so this is the nature of a person being on a journey. He could be on a journey for trade. Maybe he loses in his trade. He incurs a loss. Um, you know, maybe incurs some harm to his, uh, you know, his car, his uh, means of travel, or whatever it might be. And so therefore he is in need of assistance and aid from the Muslims. So whatever the situation might be, being on a journey is one of those uh, categories who have a right upon the Muslims that he be aided and that he be supported on his on his path. And the final, so that was number nine, and the final, وَمَا مَلَكَتْ إِيمَانُكُمْ وَمَا مَلَكَتْ إِيمَانُكُمْ That which your right hands possess. So this now includes everything. It includes the raqiq, includes the hayawan, meaning that you know you might own uh, the the servant, what the right hand possesses. You might own an animal. There might be things in your possession, right? All of them have the, you know you will be you will be responsible in front of Allah Azawajal for giving each of these their right, right? Right? Until even if you have a cat or you have some other you know whatever it might be. Um, you, 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 you are responsible because that is under your, under your, you know, under your, what, what your hand possesses. So the Sheikh says, in relation to the, you know, what your right hand possesses, you've got to give him food, what you eat, clothing like what you clothe, right? And obviously, in accordance with your abilities. And likewise, if you have animals that you look after, camels, donkeys, you know, or things that are under your possession which, uh, you know, which, which, are, which are useful for you for certain things, then likewise you have to spend upon them or feed them or give them their needs in terms of like the pasture, the food and so on and so forth. All of that is again one, one, one of the categories which, which have a right upon you. So finally the Sheikh is, uh, answers an issue here, like what about the maids and the servants that you like employ? Are they, are they considered to be from what your right hand possesses and do they come under, you know, these right, this, this category? And the Sheikh answers no, because they are more like employees, you are employing them for, for a service. And so your duty towards them is that whatever the agreement is, whatever the rate is, whatever the payment is, or if there's any other agreement that, that you will house them or whatever, then you have to fulfill those rights. So no, they do not come under what your right hand possesses. Rather, this is more something which is like contractual or a service or like they, they are an employee. And so therefore, that comes into a different uh, subject area. Finally, Allah Azawajal, He finished this verse with the following, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يُحِبُّ مَنْ كَانَ مُخْتَالًا فَخُورًا Indeed, Allah does not love the one who is مُخْتَالًا You know, one who is has kibr, arrogant, fakhura, one who boasts, is boastful. And notice how this was added at the end of the verse which mentions all the rights. The right of Allah Azawajal, the right of the parents, the right of the neighbors, the right of the orphan, the right of the, um, sorry, the right of the relatives, then the right of the orphan, then the right of the neighbors, near and far, and you know, and then the traveler and the so and so forth. At the end of all of that is a warning against arrogance, pride, and being boastful. Why? Because 
pride and arrogance is because you you have plenty, you are wealthy, you are, you know, uh, and you might use that, or that might, that might lead you to look down upon other people and to neglect their rights, right? So there's a warning at the end not to have these traits and these qualities. And the Sheikh says, Al-Fakhur, it is the one who, you know, is boastful of what Allah has given him, and he looks himself above other people because of his wealth, because of his offspring, uh, because of his status or position. And what is obligatory upon a Muslim is to have tawadu'a, to be, to be humble. As we see, وَمَا تَوَادَعَ أَحَدٌ لِلَّهِ إِلَّا رَفْعَهُ اللَّهِ No one humbled himself in front of Allah, to Allah, except that Allah raised him. And the definition of al-kibr is given by the Messenger of Allah Wasallam. This is the best definition. لَا يَدْخُلُ الْجَنَّةِ من كان في قلبي من كان في قلبه مثقال ذرة من كبر. He will not enter paradise in whose heart there is an aspect's weight of pride of arrogance. And so the companion said, يا رسول الله إن الرجل يحب أن يكون ثوبه أن يكون ثوبه حسنا. A man loves that his thobe is an yakuna thawbuhu hasanan and likewise his shoes to be to be good so the messenger of allah he said inna allah jamilun yuhibbul jamal al kibr batarul haqq wa ghamtun nas he said indeed allah is beautiful and he loves beauty but al kibr arrogance is to disdain or reject the truth to reject the truth and to look down upon the people. To look down upon the people. Right? So this is what is arrogance. If you have a nice house, and a nice car, and nice clothes, and whatever, okay, that's good. You can have that. You can have that. And you can, you are grateful to Allah Azawajal for that. But you do not look down upon other people. You don't think that I'm somehow better than these other people, and I'm loftier and greater, and somehow your wealth and your status means that you don't have to accept the truth. You can reject, no. Right? So you can have those things, but kibr is to reject the truth and to look down upon the people. Right? So when you look down upon, when you reject the truth, it means falsehood now becomes preponderant when you reject the truth. And when you do look down upon the people, you know, when you look down, the, uh, when you look down upon the people, then uh, this, you know, is this to belittle them? Because either their lineage, you, you boast about your lineage, or your wealth, or your status, or your position, you know, your, your career, or whatever it might be. All of this is evil, and it makes you belittle the rights of other people and not fulfill the rights of other people. That, in turn, leads to injustice and corruption in society. Right, so look at how all of these things. Look at how in Islam, it's the in, internal, the internal, and the external are always combined. Right, meaning that we are prohibited from those things like pride and arrogance that come in the way of us fulfilling the rights of other people. So the rights are mentioned, and we are encouraged to fulfill them, and those things which hinder people from fulfilling the rights, they're also prohibited as well. And this is the beauty of the Sharia in that it prohibits a thing 
and all those things that lead to that thing and it commands the thing and removes all the barriers that prevent the actualization of that thing. Right? So we see this in many affairs of the Sharia. We cannot sit at a place where alcohol is being drunk because alcohol is forbidden. So the thing is forbidden and the things that lead to that thing are forbidden as well. Right? We are prohibited to uh, adultery and fornication, having illicit relations, right, with, with, with men or with women. And we are not allowed to be alone with a foreign man or a foreign woman, right? Because that leads. And so you see, all of the Sharia, it is coherent and it supports parts of its support, other parts, and there's no flaw or incoherence in the law. Just like there is no incoherence in the creed, just like there is no incoherence in what Allah has created. When we observe and we see, there's no incoherence, right? All works together in accordance with Allah's justice. So, this brings us to the end of this whole uh, series. Uh, this is like a very, may Allah reward the Shaykh, rahimahullah, uh, for treating this subject for us like in a very nice, concise, beautiful way and extracting the benefits from this ayah. Uh, it's, may Allah reward him. And so with that, we'll conclude our lesson there for today. We have, we're very close to the end. I think we have two topics left. The hadith on the man who killed 99 people and then he repented. And finally, the hadith of the three men who sought refuge in the cave. And finally, the hadith about the believer who recites the Qur'an, the parable of the believer who recites the Qur'an. So these are shuruh of three ahadith. This is what is ahead of us, inshallah. Maybe we'll finish this in, a, in the next few gatherings. So with that, we'll conclude. Our lesson there for today. Walhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een.
Yeah, that, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons, yes. I mean, from their point of view, they, uh, you know, eventually they believe the evangelical Christians is that Isa alayhi salam is going to lead them to fight against everybody else and convert everybody else, even the Jews. But as it stands, this alliance that they have, you know, what, what's, you know, it, it, it's like they, they make this alliance knowing. So, for example, to the Jews, right, the Christians are idolaters. Right, you, you, they, they actually say it. There's a, I was watching a video just today of a rabbi saying that, you know, all across the world there are six billion idolaters. This is a Jew, Jewish rabbi saying this, right? There are six billion idolaters. You have the Indians are idolaters. You have the two billion Christians who are, they are idol worshippers. You have, right? So this, this is what the, the Jews believe about the Christians, that they are, that they are actual idol worshippers. So they would never go into a church to pray because it is a place of idolatry to the Jews, right? Conversely, the Christians, they see the Jews as, as lost because they rejected Isa al-Islam, whom they believe to be the Son of God. But they believe that when he does come, he will lead them and convert all the Jews, even if that be by bloodshed. Just as the Jews believe that when the Messiah comes, then he will conquer all the nations and, you know, including the Christians will be wiped out because they are idolaters or whatever. And um, so, how can each of these parties with such diametrically opposed beliefs find utility in each other? Right? How do you, how do you find utility in each other when the actual belief you are operating from is diametrically opposed and this is a proof that they are upon batil because you know like like we have you know like when you understand the whole issue of of iman and irja and what's inward cannot be separated from what is outward and the beliefs have to be consistent with 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 the statements and the expression right how can this, like, how can this be, um, you know, so this, so this shows that this for them is not for the sake of Allah. Do you get what I'm saying? Right? It's, it's a worldly expediency between them, between, between them both. And that allegiance is obviously against who? Against the uh, people of, of Islam, you know. And, and the mask is really coming off. You can see the mask very clearly coming off that this, 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 you know, um, that the, that the intent, that the, the thirst for blood and the intent to kill and to supply weapons and to bomb and to maim and to destroy and to cleanse and to, you can very clearly see that coming, you know, uh, the pretense of it is all gone, you know, from, from these people. Um, uh, and then everything else that's attached to it, such as you know the climate change and the global warming and the carbon emissions. You know, are you going to drop all these bombs and you want the war? And now, what's happened to all the carbon emissions? You know, like the hypocrisy of everything just comes out when 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 
you have situations like this, you know. Say again? question was what should the Muslim stance be on, on Hamas you know our criterion our criterion is that we evaluate everybody with the Quran the Sunnah and the way of the Salaf and the rectification of the earth can only be done by that with which the messengers and the messenger of Allah rectified the earth and that was on the basis of Tawheed, the purity of creed, the purity of heart, uh, sincerity to Allah, um, righteous actions upon the sunnah, and strength of conviction in the hereafter, the sound creed. And that's why the companions in such a short time, <clears throat> they conquered the east to the west with minimal resistance as I said to you right uh, and, and droves and droves of people entered into Islam willingly by seeing the beauty of, of, of Islam overwhelmingly we're not denying that there weren't military conquests that's just the nature of empire um, but in a very short time you know that it went from the east to the west and that aid and support was on the basis of what is in the hearts of sound belief, purity of creed, veneration of Allah. Now, when you have the situation that you have, and you see the sad and pitiful state today, where you have amongst the Muslims, you have, for example, the one who believes Allah is everywhere, the one who believes the companions were all apostates, or the more, most of them, the one who believes, um, you know, you, you, have, you have the communist, right? So you're amongst, you have the socialist, you have the communist, you have all of these people, all of these beliefs, all of these doctrines. And what are they fighting for? They're fighting for worldly grievances. It becomes like, it, it devolves into a worldly issue, right? And so, so you have mixed within all of that, you have sin and disobedience in the Muslim nation. And we're speaking about the ummah as a whole, right? Nobody is exempt from this, right? The ruler and the ruled. It's everybody, right? We have all of these things present, and um, which means that it's really not possible for Allah's aid and Allah's support to be given to the ummah in the way that it was to the sahaba because we have all of these barriers and hindrances to that and so therefore when we come and look at these kind of groups which, which are present whether it is Al-Qaeda whether it is Daesh, ISIS whether it is Hamas whether it is you know whatever it might be then um You know, they, they are part of the reason, part of the reason why we have these problems and we have these issues 
and we are not receiving the aid and the assistance of Allah Azawajal. And we have to also keep in mind there are many, many dynamics to the situation. Some of these groups are propped up by the Rafida, the Shia. They have their own designs in the region, like Iran, Hezbollah. These are the enemies of Allah, right? And we shouldn't be deceived into thinking that they care for the Palestinians, right? This is a political expediency for them. I don't know whether you've seen these videos of some of these uh, Shia imams being very frank and honest. This is where you get. This is where you really hear the truth. Right? Just like, you know, with a lot of these rabbis, when you hear their statements, right? Which you don't really, you're not going to come across. They tell you the real truth. In the same way, some of these clerics of the Shia, the statements of these, I just saw some the other day saying, you know, what's all this Palestine thing? These are Sunnis. Right? Who cares about Palestine? You know, the Jews are better because even though they're upon disbelief, it's better for us to live with them. Whereas with the Palestinians, like because they consider them to be hypocrites, like Sunnis are hypocrites, right? Because they ascribe to Islam, but really they, they're not. They're not, you know. So who cares about them? We don't, we don't, that issue doesn't even concern us at all. And we'd rather live with the with, with the Jews, right? That's what the Rafida, the clerics, are saying. That okay. So these are the people who are supporting. Hezbollah and Hamas and whatever. So you have to ask, okay, what, you know, if they engage in a battle or a war, that is in order to gain strength and preponderance over the Sunni nations and populations and to gain a tactical advantage, you know, in the region. And if there is any fighting that takes place, who knows? That they won't even that that, that won't even be that, that, that they're not going to be any collaboration between the Rawafid and the Yahud to target the Sunni, right? Because this has happened in history. In history, this has happened. It's known about the Rawafid that this is what they do, right? So because they, because there are some dynamics in place, it becomes a very very confusing situation, and that's why the common person shouldn't really speak on these issues because he's going to put himself into trial. But what we do say is we make dua for the Muslimin in whichever place they might be. We aid them and support them in whatever way we can with dua, uh, with sending of wealth through legitimate channels for relief, making sure that it is through legitimate channels and it's not going to any kind of extremists or whatever like that, you know. Uh, because this issue of, of wealth and charities, it's, you know, uh, we have to be very careful with that. So that the relief reaches them of medicine, of food, of drink, of clothing, or whatever it might be. And to make dua, that's what we can do. And, you know, to pray at night and to make dua for them and do whatever we can. And also to make dua for the, for the leaders of the Muslims that Allah, you know, uh, gives them support and aid in doing that which is correct and uh, you know, this, this, is, this is what we can do. But the wider issue here is, um, just like Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, in his time there was an issue when the Mongols came from the east 
And the people came out and they were scared and terrified and they started going to the graves and seeking refuge in the grave of Abu Umar and so on and so forth and whatever. And so the scholars at that time, they fell into two groups, they differed. Some scholars said, well, we have to, we have to repel, we have to engage in uh, jihad to repel the Tatars, to repel the Mongols. Some others said, no, no, not really, this is not, it's not really the right time to be doing that. So this actual dispute broke out amongst the scholars of that time in the presence of, of uh, Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah. So Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he advised that we have to spend the time purifying the, purifying the hearts of the Muslims and inculcating Tawheed in their hearts. So they did that for many, many years. And after that, as Ibn Taymiyyah says, rahimahullah, that the Muslims had so many tremendous victories that they've never ever that they never ever had before and that's because of the power and strength of of tawhid uh, that it has in 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 aid and assistance in in this life so but the thing is that this is the long difficult bitter path and bitter pill for people to swallow because, because of the absence of being nurtured upon the right creed, tawheed, and spending time to, to learn these affairs and to nurture one's, oneself, right, to get that understanding, most Muslims sadly, they're empty. And they're like vessels who can be filled with emotion very quickly. And that emotion can then be led and manipulated. And that's why, very sadly, you know, when you try to explain these things, you're going to, go to, you're going to get an emotional response from, from the average Muslim because he, can't, he does not appreciate these things, that there, are, that there are laws and rules in Allah's creation by which things happen, right? And there are ways and means, causes and effects, and, you know, and they're not willing to see that because it's all raw emotion. And this is the difference between the one who can rein in his emotions with knowledge and with understanding and with certainty of what Allah has mentioned in his book. And the one who is just, you know, and that's why you see uh, people protesting on the streets all across you, which is fruitless. What's, what's the benefit in that? You know, and this is here where we really see the stupidity or the harm of people like 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 Hamas, for example. First of all, first of all, they are a creation of the of the Israeli right and the Zionists to begin with. This is a well-established matter that they were funded, brought into existence for the specific reason of having a constant enemy, so that they can do away of do away with any kind of peaceful negotiation. Why? Because this whole project is expansionist in its nature, right? It, it is intended to expand and to take over that region. So therefore, you need constant threat, hostility, controversy, right? And so, because because any talk of negotiations, sitting down, whatever, whatever. It kills that warmongering spirit, 
So these people tactically, they supported the creation and putting these Hamas people in, in, in power. This is well known, right? even up, to, up until like the last few years, you're going to find statements of theirs saying that, you know, openly Hamas is an enemy, secretly Hamas is an ally. We have to fund Hamas, right? So you have to, you have to imagine like the hypocrisy of like, you know, on the one hand, you're funding Hamas, let's, let's get Hamas to rule over the Palestinians, let them have democratic elections, let the Palestinians vote in the Hamas, let's put all this in place, right? And then, you know, because they're going to be hostile and they don't want any negotiations, they just want whatever, that will then serve our purpose of saying to the world, see, they want to destroy us and whatever, and when hostilities break out, we can then use it as an excuse to expand, you know, uh, uh, the region and to take over Gaza and whatever. This is a ploy, it's a trick. It's a tactic uh, that, that, that they are using. And then you see all these crocodile tears about, you know, uh, uh, when, 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 you know, the, 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 the tool of the creation, which is Hamas, does what they want Hamas to do, which is to commit atrocities so that they can then say, look, we now have to, you know, clear out Gaza. Of the, of the terror, because, because that's what you planned all along to begin with, <laughs> right? And then you're making this pretense to the world as if somehow, you know... So so these groups, whether it's Daesh, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, they are simply tools and creations for geopolitical agendas, right? And these people have ended up in this situation because they are not, they are not founded upon you know, the issue isn't for them Tawheed and Sunnah. It's, it's worldly grievance. And you can be very easily manipulated and used when that is the, the basis of your, of your operation and your activities. And another thing as well, don't you find it strange that not a whimper, not a whisper from Daesh? Where's Daesh gone? Where's ISIS gone? Disappeared. Nowhere to be seen. Like meaning, meaning, wouldn't you expect that they would come along and say, "Okay, we've now announced, you know, uh, jihad against the, the the Jews or something," which is what you would expect, which is what the West would expect them to do as well, right? Where are they? No way to be seen. They they are only present when it comes to destabilizing Muslim countries. That's when they turn up and they show up, right? Right? No way to be seen. So we know that these are creations of of the you know, of, of the West, and they are, they are simply tools of, of, of the West to destabilize countries. But what will happen, for example, now, all of a sudden, like maybe, Allah knows best, we might start seeing um, these kind of false flag, false flag terrorist attacks start happening in Europe and the US, you know. Maybe there'll be some mad kind of extremist idiot or something who will maybe do something here and there. Yes, maybe some of these things might happen. But the context is ripe for these Western uh, kind of intelligence agencies to create false flag, these false flag, you know, terrorist bombings that they themselves have been doing for two, three decades. They're the ones who've been doing that largely, right? And then just to, you know, and so then, then all of a sudden ISIS will return. They are back. They've come back now, you know, right? So all of this is, uh, I guess, in a nutshell, what I'm saying is. The people of innovation and misguidance, in fact, it's exactly as 
I think it's Abu Wafa ibn Aqil, I think is the one. I think he said that, or maybe it's another person. There's a, there's a statement where the people of innovation are to the people of Islam like people on the inside of a, like a fortress who open the door and allow the enemies to come in. This is Ahlul Bida'i wa Dalal. Right? So, in the same way, these kind of groups like the Khawarij, the extremists, and the terrorists, you know, those who kill innocent civilians and kill, kill non Muslim civilians and, you know, bomb uh, places and whatever, um, these are like the Trojan horse. The, these are the people who open the door to allow non Muslims to come in and to, you know, uh, to, 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 to wreak havoc and to use them for their own advantage. This is what these people are, whether it's Hamas, whether it's ISIS, Daesh, Al-Qaeda, whatever it might be. All of these extremist groups, they end up becoming tools. If, if they never started out as a tool, they end up becoming a tool. Right? And so that's why the whole thing becomes very, very murky becomes very, very confusing. When you leave the Sunnah and Tawheed, for the people of Sunnah and Tawheed, the affairs are clear. But for people who are not nurtured upon that, things are very, very murky. And so they only have their emotions to kind of really go upon. And that's why in these times of fitan, we, you know, we have to be very careful what we say, what we speak. And... Um, you know, it's a very sensitive issue, as in, you know, uh, this is complex. There's complex issues going on here. But what we can do, we make dua for the Muslimin, for the oppressed. Uh, we send them aid, relief for food, clothing, medicine, you know, uh, and ask Allah uh, to send his aid and his support. And we have yaqeen in the promise of Allah, you know, and, and we know absolutely justice will be done uh, in this life or the next. And uh, that's what we can do, what we can say. We have to continue calling to uh, calling to Allah, calling to Tawheed, calling to the Sunnah. This never stops. right? Because this is paving the way, paving the way for aid and support. right? So Dawah doesn't stop just because of this. Uh, we continue uh, because that, that is the foundation of rectification. right? And it's the moral justification for everything else that follows on from that. So, we'll suffice with that, inshallah ta'ala. Allah knows best. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in.